You're listening to Commute, the podcast. Congratulations, you'll be smarter when you get there. What up? Welcome into Commute, the podcast. I'm Dave. And I'm Jay. And we are about to take you on a deep dive on three topics that we find interesting, and we're betting that you might just find them interesting, too. We can promise you this, you'll be smarter when you get there. On this edition of Commute, smoking or non? For a long time, that was the first question that American consumers answered before we ate at restaurants or rode on airplanes. While we obviously don't answer that question anymore, are we actually headed for a future entirely free of cigarettes? By now, you're probably familiar with one of the most famous one-minute videos of all time, the Patterson-Gimlin film, which supposedly documents an encounter with Bigfoot. But what about the strange, complicated legacy of the video, and has it ever been officially debunked? To sleep or not to sleep? That is the question. Every night, over and over, until we die. So why exactly do we need sleep? And is sleep deprivation really worse than terrorism? All of that on this edition of Commute. Let's get it. Jay, a few years ago, we did something incredibly random with a group of friends. And honestly, now that I'm thinking about it, I believe it was for your wife's birthday. Like, for some odd reason, this thing had been on her bucket list. Do you recall? Yeah, we went and we played bingo. And we were uh, the youngest people there by about 40 years. And (laughs) I was so into it, though. Like, because I kept imagining winning. You know, and it was like this rush of gambling. And I mean, like, it was expensive. Like, if you did it every day, it'd be way too much money. But, like, to do it once was fine. I think the bingo cards were, like, 20 bucks each. And some of those old ladies, though, had, like, 15 of them spread out on a table. Oh, yeah. They were taking it extremely seriously. We played bingo. And, Jay, there's a lot we could unpack, like we just kind of mentioned, about the sights and the sounds that go on inside a bingo hall. But one particularly prominent thing stands out in my memory from that experience. The bingo hall was in a large warehouse-type building, and upon entering, you were asked a simple question. A question that we are virtually never asked in 2022. A question that up until the mid to late 1990s, believe it or not, was actually asked pretty frequently. Jay, that question is as follows. Smoking or non? Jay, it really wasn't that long ago when smoking resembled the days of the legendary AMC show Mad Men. People smoked at work, at home, on the bus, on airplanes, while they dined in restaurants, and yes, while they played bingo, even though they apparently still do that. In the 1940s, 50s, and even into the 1960s, smoking wasn't thought to be all that bad for you. In fact, an estimated 50% of all Americans smoked in the 1950s. Smoking, like that morning cup of coffee, was just something people did. The first signs of trouble, though, for the tobacco industry, known rather unaffectionately as Big Tobacco, ooh, came about in 1964 with the release of a report from the Surgeon General's office saying, wait a second, you know that thing we thought might be bad for you? Could not 
be bad for you, but probably is bad for you. Yeah, it, it turns out it, it, it is bad for you. Another report followed in the 1970s, citing the dangers of secondhand smoke and America's complicated relationship with cigarettes and tobacco in general was officially rocking and rolling. Believe it or not, though, Jay, little interesting side tidbit, Mr. History, it was actually Adolf Hitler who is credited with the first modern smoking restriction. In fact, the Nazis, under the direction of Hitler, conducted numerous anti-tobacco campaigns until their demise in the 1940s. I can see the headline now, like, Commute the Podcast host defends Hitler on podcast. <laughs> Still, for the next few decades, after that original Surgeon General warning, smoking continued to be more or less optional in crowded public places. The aforementioned smoking or non question was an option at restaurants into the 1990s, 30 years after that original Surgeon General report. And you could even elect to sit in the non-smoking section of an airplane, giving you, you know, an extra five to seven feet of pure air distance, baby, between your nose and the closest lit cigarette. And you ask why? Why did it go on for 30 years? And why are we still wrestling with this? Well, money talks. Big tobacco, as I mentioned a couple minutes ago, is a huge deal in corporate America. And so money continues to drive the tobacco industry. All of this, though, Jay, rapidly changed in the 1980s and 1990s and led to a lot of what we still deal with today. In February 1990, a ban of smoking on domestic flights of less than six hours happened, eventually turning into all flights, regardless of length, followed by a 1997 executive order from your boy, former President Bill Clinton, banning smoking in all federal buildings. Today, Jay, only a handful of U.S. states do not have formal smoking bans on the books, even though there's only a few counties located in those states that actually allow smoking, which I'm sure has prompted many of those residents to purchase the always popular, at least I can still smoke in my car, bumper sticker. But Jay, on a personal level, I've always thought smoking just looked kind of cool, <laughs> to be honest with you. And despite the potential health problems associated with it, Smoking still does exist. And due to the addictive nature of the nicotine found in cigarettes, once you start, it's really hard to stop. At least one town in America, though, Jay, has decided to do something a little radical to try and cut out smoking altogether. In 2021, the town of Brookline, Massachusetts, adopted an unprecedented public policy that banned the purchase of tobacco products not based on current age, but based by birth date. So essentially, Jay, if you were born on or after January 1st, 2000, you will never, ever, ever be legally allowed to buy tobacco products in Brookline. Could this restriction maybe be the roadmap for the future of smoking? Possibly. Public support for the outright ban of smoking has never been higher with Time Magazine reporting that a 2018 Gallup poll found that 25% of American adults would support a full smoking ban. That's up from just 11% in the mid-1990s. But Jay, I'm not gonna lie, it still just looks so darn cool, man. I mean, picture this, me, a motorcycle. Maybe wearing those leather pants without the butt in them. And a cigarette. Does it get any cooler than that? Uh, I stopped picturing it when you got to the part where you have uh, 
pants with no butt. But I will say that uh, there was a diner in my hometown that uh, when this smoking ban kind of came down in our home state that you couldn't have a smoking section in a restaurant, they were kind of old school. You know, they'd been around since like the 30s or the 40s or something. It was like one of those old diners. They were like, no, we're going to keep having our smoking section. The government's not going to tell us what to do. And then they just got fined into oblivion and they ended up going out of business. So <laughs> They're probably the people who actually sell those bumper stickers online now. That I can still smoke in my car. That's probably yeah, what they're they still trying to, to get do. revenge for it all this time later. So Dave, uh, when it comes to Bigfoot, uh, where are you at on that? Are you a believer in Bigfoot? You already know. So, you know, we, we referenced on an earlier episode, which shout out to a commute listener, R.L. Ely. He and I had a conversation the other day briefly about my uh, alien stance, which I still stand by that aliens do not exist. Bigfoot's the same way, doesn't exist. I think he's interesting, though. The same way I think all the cryptid, uh, like Loch Ness, you remember the, uh, there's a previous episode where we talked about the Loch Ness Monster, and I used to go home from school and watch the camera to see if I'd spot it. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just thinking, about, just thinking about you sitting at home, staring at the screen, like looking at <laughs> every wave kicking up and you're like i'm gonna find i like gave up friendships for that so you've seen the video that i'm that we're going to talk about in this segment right the patterson gimlin film everybody's seen the video it's when you google bigfoot it's the image that comes up and so in october of 1967 robert patterson and bob gimlin took the iconic one minute video on a 16 millimeter camera that will go down in history as the best piece of evidence of the existence of bigfoot so it's, it is that video that you're thinking of where Bigfoot is walking and then he turns his body to look back before continuing off into the wilderness. You may have heard the video has been debunked or that it hasn't. And really the truth of that is somewhere in the middle. It sort of depends on who you ask. The legendary Patterson-Gimlin film is still highly controversial today, maybe more so now than it ever has been. So let's go back to the beginning. The story goes like this. In 1967, Bob Gimlin had bumped into his longtime friend, Roger Patterson, who was an avid Bigfoot believer. He had even written a self-published book about the existence of the creature. So Patterson convinced Gimlin that he had heard rumors of Bigfoot tracks nearby. And so he convinced him to go on an excursion with him to hunt for Bigfoot evidence. So into the forest they went, and as Patterson tells it, the pair's horses began acting skittish, and then a skunk stench filled the air. So they looked ahead and saw the creature in the distance, so Patterson quickly grabbed his camera and documented the famous shot that we all know now. They ran back to camp to grab plaster to cast the prints, and then rode 30 miles to a store to ship the film to a safe place. Patterson and Gimlin both quickly rose to fame as their video aired across the country. But trouble followed the men wherever they went, showing off the evidence. Patterson was immediately accused of creating a hoax to finance his Bigfoot endeavors. And Dave, the film did make Patterson quite a bit of money when he sold the rights to the BBC. As the years went on, accusations of forgery grew. First, a man named Bob Hieronymus claimed that he actually was the creature in the film, that he was asked by Patterson to don a suit and walk for a documentary that Patterson was making on Bigfoot. A costume designer named Philip Morris then claimed in 2002 that he actually created the costume used in the film and sold it to Patterson. Timeline inconsistencies persist as well around the story of the actual day the film was shot. 
Now, in Gimlin's case, he was either kept in the dark about the hoax, if one existed, or he's just a really good liar. He has remained adamant to this day that what he saw on that day was an actual creature. In the years since, the film has been analyzed by just about every expert you can imagine, from biologists to primatologists to special effects experts to forensic film experts, and opinions are truly split on the film itself. You can find experts such as primatologists Jeffrey Meldrum, who has analyzed the film and has concluded in his expertise that the film is not a hoax. He cites the anatomical movement beneath the fur as evidence that the creature has visible muscles and anatomy rather than the typical non-movement that would be present in a suit. Experts on special effects point out that if it's a suit, it's a crazy good one, and the person in it is moving in a very unhuman way on purpose. But then also you can find experts like John Napier, the former director of the Smithsonian's primate biology program, who points to the crests on the head of the Bigfoot and the strange shape of the footprints as evidence that the film is a hoax. In his words, quote, it was a brilliantly executed hoax and the unknown perpetrator will take his place with the great hoaxers of the world. Now, for what it's worth, Dave, Patterson did pass a lie detector test by a polygraph expert in 1968, and he never changed his story before his death at 38 years old. The issue here, though, is that Hieronymus, the man who claimed to be in the suit, actually passed a polygraph too. Gimlin never wavered either and often spoke negatively of the whole experience, describing the notoriety as toxic fame and resenting the fact that Patterson saw all the profits from the footage. Gimlin actually sold his stake in the film eventually for less than $10. Despite all this, he at least said that what he saw on that day was very real, despite the fact that he has been very public that he believed the film ruined his life. He received all the ridicule and none of the money. And since the film was debuted to the world, it has been analyzed maybe more than any other film in history, and yet the film remains a Rorschach test in a way. You can find experts who verify its authenticity, and you can find experts who offer proof that it's a hoax. The reality of the film itself is that it just doesn't offer us enough information to be certain one way or another. Therefore, debunking can only happen from the outside, like if the suit turned up or if Gimlin himself confessed. And since that doesn't appear to be on the table, the film will continue to live on in this gray area. But it is in that gray area that conspiracies or legends thrive. And that's why this film has persisted for so long, Dave, and it allows just enough room to believe. Less than 10 bucks. Give me a break. You can get more for a used tire that's flat. So that guy got ripped. (laughs) Now, according to this polling I found, this is legitimate polling too, 10% of the American public believes that Bigfoot is real. I expected that it would be high than that. That just blows my mind. But I will say this. Okay, so my wife's like third or fourth cousin, so it's getting way out there, is part of a Bigfoot like research team. And by research, I mean like an investigative team that like goes out and tries to find him. So you and I may be able to score a ride along. Yeah, I mean, I know you say you don't believe in Bigfoot, but picture this. You're alone in the woods and you hear something off in the distance. I don't know. You might sort of believe a little bit in that moment. We went camping a few years ago, me and you and like 10 other people. We're sleeping in this little teeny tent and I woke up at like 2 a.m., and I heard this growling outside of the tent, and I just, I thought it was a bear. No, I, like, I knew it was a bear. So I said a prayer. <laughs> I'll never do anything wrong again, God. <laughs> just don't let this bear maul No, it me. was more like accepting my death. Like, God, thank you for the life you've given me, but it's over. 
just help this. Just please let this be quick. I mean, I'm not kidding you. I really thought we were going to die. Unzipped it. It was a dog. <laughs> Jay, and I already know your answer to this, so I'm already, uh, I'm going to establish up front that I'm already annoyed and mad. But what is your relationship with sleep? Well, I'm very good at sleep. And what I mean by that is that I can fall asleep probably within about 30 seconds of a time of my choosing, and I can stay asleep so for much. as long as, as I want. I really do. I mean, you, you take that for granted. Head hits the pillow, and I'm gone. Well, I have never honestly really loved to go to sleep. I'm someone who doesn't naturally like to slow down anyway, so especially at night, I'll do just about anything to not go to bed, even knowing that I'll be tired when I get up in the morning. And Jay, here's the thing that I and so many others just need to find a way to deal with. We humans need sleep. In fact, for nearly a third of the time that we will walk this earth, which is roughly 9,500 days on an average lifetime, we will be asleep. So why? Why do we need to shut everything down and do nothing for roughly seven to eight hours every night without exception? Well, in the words of the research team at Sleep Advisor, one of the nation's leaders in sleep studies, global sleep problems might be causing more damage to our world than terrorism. Jay, first of all, and quickly, what happens when we sleep? Well, think of it like your body is doing maintenance on itself. When children sleep, ages ranging from an infant all the way up until that senior in high school, sleep allows the brain to build its infrastructure, especially REM sleep, meaning that time at night where you are most dead to the world is spent building the important neural pathways needed for healthy brain function. But that time after adolescence is just as, if not more, important. Post-childhood, the brain utilizes sleep to basically declutter. And this decluttering process is essential to not only brain health, but overall health. High levels of type 2 diabetes, heart attack, depression, anxiety, and premature death can all be directly linked to lack of sleep. And that fatal car crash you saw on the news, or that mistake that you made last week at work, yeah, those are probably due, at least in part, to lack of sleep, believe it or not. In fact, the National Center for Biotechnology Information reports that over, get this, 100,000 deaths per year can be directly attributed to medical errors due to sleep deprivation. And while there are plenty of people like me that just would prefer not to sleep, lack of sleep has unfortunately evolved into the perceived cost of being successful. Want to get ahead in life? Burn that midnight oil, as they say. And Americans in general are just simply sleeping less, with the average time spent in Slumberville falling from nearly eight hours per night in 1942 to under seven by 2018. Hawaiians report getting the least amount of sleep in the U.S. They just can't wait to get up and experience being in Hawaii, while our friends in South Dakota just basically stay in bed all day. They report getting the most shut-eye every night. Wouldn't you? They live in South Dakota. Yeah, you don't get out of bed. You don't, you don't open your curtains. You're just on the computer looking for places to move. Apologies to people. <laughs> and even though you are the way you are, for most of us, Jay, it's not as simple as just trying to go to bed earlier. 
20% of American adults tried a natural remedy for sleep problems last year. And the sales of melatonin supplements in the U.S., which is a natural supplement found in the body that promotes sleep, grew from 62 million in 2003 to over 400 million in 2020, an increase of over 500%. So while you may be like me out there and sleep may not be your cup of tea, or you could be like Jay and just fall asleep immediately on command, or you could be like my wife who loves to sleep so much that she once fell asleep in a random white van in Israel. Sleep (laughs) is not only essential to your overall health, it's also unavoidable. So you might as well just make peace with it. Have you ever read uh, about people who have undergone studies uh, based on like sleep deprivation? So they'll like purposely try to keep themselves awake for science uh, and then people will study them. It's very interesting. We might want to do a segment on it at some point. Uh, You basically, at about 72 hours, you just completely start hallucinating. Your whole world just breaks down and you have like a complete mental breakdown. And that's it. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. Don't forget to rate, subscribe, and review Commute on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcast platform. Check us out. We're on social. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And you can always say what up at our website, commutethepodcast.com. Music for Commute is provided by my main man, Jason Sammons. For Jay Sisson, I'm Dave Traub. We'll see you next week. Oh, it's a big hit.